still there, Pete? I see Mike. I don't see you. Yeah, that didn't work. Well, what do you want to do? Should we try it? Okay. Okay, take it from the top, sir. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Peter Burson, and welcome to another edition of um, Money Talks and Bullshit Walks, or as those in the know, MTBW, the history of Philadelphia from 1980 to present, from Green to Kenny. As always, I am joined by Joe Willard, the king of Wissahickon. Joe was crowned the king by the now lapsed Treaty of Ridge and the Creamery. It's running up to the Supreme Court. I don't know if you saw that. Joe, stop shaking your head and say hello. Hey, hello, people. As most of you know, Joe is our Swiss Army knife. He writes, he directs, and he really texts. He really does. Um, you don't pay me enough for it either. He, he's now throwing in his two cents. Uh, and I just want to say that Mrs. Podster has left yours truly in the lurch. So we're going to go with it anyway. So before we get started, I do want all you Podsters to know that we have consulted with our attorney, Bombastic Bushkin, of the law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. And Bushkin asks, no, he emphasizes that for all past, current, and future podcasts, that we are not historians, we are not journalists, although at times we've had former journalists be a guest on our podcast. Like Joe and I, he makes no greater claim other than we do. We deal in urban legends, and if the truth does get in the way, well, so be it. Uh, you can view us as a group of people just sitting in a bar like we used to could before the virus, getting some laughs and talking trash about the city that loves you back, the land of the giants, as the former Inquirer's columnist Steve Lopez said more than once. Now, before I get into everything, i just like everybody out there in podland to know uh, first, that our featured guest is Mike Freeman. Uh, he is a former reporter and editor for the Philadelphia Daily News. Mike, of course, is no stranger to MTBW. Uh, and like that, he will get to show and his uh, uh, say, shall we say. He'll bring some quality to, to the proceedings, let's say. I, I would say that wouldn't be uh, a high bar to, to launch over. Uh, but I want the people to know that we've received complaints that have been leveled at our sports department. Not that we have one, but anyway, to put it in a nutshell, the person who shall rename nameless and anonymous complained that we have not spoken and, and actually ignored his flyboys. So the flyers from 1980 to 1987, which is where we're going to go today. So here it is for Mr. Anonymous. 1980, the Flyers were 41, 24, and 15. The 15 are ties. They lost in the quarterfinals of the playoffs. Pat Quinn was their coach. Well, it's not baseball, that's for sure. In 1981, the Flyers were 38 and 31. They finished third place in their division. I don't remember what division that is. 1982, the Flyers were 49 and 23. 
and had a new coach, Bob McCammon. They were swept in the playoffs by the Rangers. Oh, that's hurt. Why did you have to mention that? I hate the Rangers. It's, it's because it's there. In 83, the Flyers were 44, 26, and 10. McCammon was still their coach, and it was the last season for the two Hall of Famers, Bobby Clark and Bill Barber. And they didn't win the Stanley Cup, and they lost in the playoffs to Washington. What's Washington's Ooh, name? That's even the Capitals. That's even not, not as bad as the Rangers, but in '84 the Flyers were 53 and 20. McCammon was still the coach. They won their division. They made it to the championship or the Stanley Cup. They lost to Edmonton. In '85 the Flyers were 53, 23 and four. McCammon was still their coach. Uh, tragically, Pelly Lindbergh, their goaltender, died in a car accident. They lost to the Rangers in the playoffs. Got to mention the Rangers again, huh? In 86, the Flyers were 46-26-8. They had a new coach, Mike Keenan, but the results were the same. They lost to Edmonton in the Stanley Cup final. Their goalie, Ron Hextall, was named the MVP. That's most valuable player for all these posters out there. Uh, in the playoffs, anyway. In 87, the Flyers were 46-26. They won the division. Keenan was still their coach. They didn't go anywhere near a Stanley Cup. So let me just finish out by saying, in the interest of equal time, in 87, the 76ers were 36-46. and 46. They don't have ties in basketball, in case you're wondering. Their coach was Jimmy Lynham. They did not make the playoffs. Their best player was Charles Barkley. And if you don't believe me, just ask him. Sir in Charles. In 1987, the Phillies were 80 and 82. No ties in baseball either. Oh, by the way, uh, they had the same record as the Fighting Phils of 2019. Their manager was cut from a slightly different bolt of cloth than Cabe Kapler. Uh, their manager in 87 was John Felsky. The be their best player was Michael Jack Smith. Goat for the great one. Know what goat means, guys? It means greatest of all time. And you might argue, but I don't care. Mike and Joe will not back me up. If they don't, they're fired and they, all, they can go on to do something else. If they do back me up, we'll go on. All right, we'll this is a tough show we're on, Mike. Hey, uh, you know, it, it, this is I tough. Do to get here, all right. In '87, the Eagles huh. were seven and nine. The coach was Buddy Ryan, and they had the best defense in Eagles history. They had Reggie White, rest in peace. Jerome Brown, rest in peace. Mike Golick, Seth Joyner, Andre Waters, rest in peace. Roynell Young. And Randall Cunningham was the quarterback. So that's it for the Fly Boys in equal time. Not bad. Not bad. So I noticed you stopped in 1987. That's because that's where we are in this grand scheme. Ah, you, you are know, a master. Yeah, well, the anonymous guy made me do this, and we'll have words with him later. Definitely. <laughs> Whoever that is. It's not the man that's laughing. With us here today is a man who needs no introduction to Money Talks Bullshit Walks, unless, of course, you have never listened to Money Talks and Bullshit Walks. Anyway, as I said earlier, Mike Freeman is here. Um, 
And although it doesn't seem like it, we did just mention it, we are in 1987. And I would just start with a foul odor coming from a home or apartment located in the 1600 block of North Street in Philadelphia. So we can begin the twisted and sick tale or story of Harrison Marty Graham. Marty, as he was known uh, in the neighborhood, liked to entertain the kids uh, with a cookie monster hand puppet. Uh, we came upon him uh, when he was 26 or 27, I'm not sure. The police came to Marty's house uh, after there was a complaint about a foul odor. Um, and they found that there was no running water and um, they determined that Graham was either a drug addict or a drug dealer or both. Um, but they also discovered where the overwhelming smell was coming from. It was coming from a couple places, but mainly from Marty's attic. Uh, there they found the decomposing bodies of a, several young black women. Most of the women, uh, I think they thought, uh, were drug addicts. Uh, the legend goes that some of them, or at least one of them, had been in the house apartment for so long that the police had to bring in an anthropologist uh, to ID the body. But again, we're dealing in urban legends. Um, so as I said, they were thought to be drug addicts. And uh, initially, the police could not make a determination as to whether the women uh, had OD'd or were simply killed. Uh, during the course of the police investigation, it was kind of both ways. Uh, it had turned out that, that Graham lured the women uh, to his place, gave them drugs or, and a fix, I think it was heroin, or I'm not sure which drugs, and then strangled the women. Some of the bodies were also found in, in nearby properties. Uh, one body was a woman, and I'm not sure if I get the right name. It's either Robin DeShaver or Shaver. Um, and the legend has it, she was Graham's girlfriend. Um, and when the police began to question Graham about her, he told the police that he loved having sex with her. But in the end, he couldn't control himself. He strangled her and after that had sex with her. Uh, so obviously Marty is arrested and his attorney uh, argued uh, first initially at the preliminary hearing that Graham was slow um, and uh, he put on evidence to that effect um, uh, including a uh, expert um, uh, about organic brain damage and that he was incompetent to stand trial. He was ordered to stand trial nevertheless and assigned and the assigned DA brought evidence, expert testimony, that Graham knew the nature and consequences of his actions. And again, he was found competent to stand trial. There was never any evidence that was introduced uh, that Graham did not commit the seven murders. Rather, Graham's attorney used another defense, the only one that really remained, and that is that Graham suffered from multiple personality disorder, that he suffered a, a, such abuse as a child uh, that he didn't really know right from wrong. Um, so he waived his right to a jury, which means he was being had his trial in front of a judge only. Uh, and the judge was uh, Robert Latrone, uh, and Latrone found him guilty of each of the seven murders. 
uh, and sentenced Graham to life for the death of Shaver or DeShaver and sentenced to death for each of the murders of the other women. Uh, it basically, that meant that uh, Graham wasn't going to be executed because he was going to do life for the, for the killing of DeShaver. Uh, ultimately, there was appeals and the sentence was overturned by the United States Supreme Court, uh, who called the sentence unethical and illegal. Uh, Excuse me, was that the Pennsylvania? Uh, which Supreme no, Court? Pennsylvania or U.S.? That, that was the Supremes. That was the U.S. Supreme Court. And made it all the way up there, huh? Hmm. And it went all the way up there and it got sent back for a resentencing. And uh, Judge Latrone uh, went with the idea after being told he was unethical that uh, there was no uh, no one uh, under the age of 18 could be executed in, in Pennsylvania or in the country, uh, but this was after the original case. So what they concocted or what they decided to do was to treat Graham because of his slowness, so to speak, as a juvenile. And therefore he gave him consecutive seven and a half to 14 years uh, in jail for each of the seven murders. Uh, and of course, basically that's going to end up to be a life sentence anyway. Uh, the prosecutor after all this uh, basically told, uh, told the world and told everybody um, that uh, he thought the, the, at that point that the verdict was just uh, and was basically, it had been a basically a, a relief to the families. Um, so one of the reasons I talked about Graham and Heidnick uh, in the previous show was um, I just think that that people out there should remember uh, who the victim of victims of these murders were. Um, and just to finish this off, Graham is still in state prison. Did, did they um, did it affect any future? Uh, approaches to prosecuting people with disabilities or uh, learning disabilities? I, I think that it became much more of a, 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 uh, a factor. Uh, the, the factor, I mean, there's a whole hearing or, or, or uh, yeah, I guess there's whole evidence that are, is put on by defense counsel in these cases or every case for that matter, as to whether or not uh, a defendant is competent to stand trial and what their uh, IQ is and their uh, ability to appreciate right from wrong. Uh, the younger you get, uh, the argument is, uh, and I think it's fairly well accepted, that the brain has not been fully formed mm -hmm. and that these are issues that uh, the judge has got to take into consideration even before the trial as to whether the, uh, the person, the child, uh, is capable of understanding the consequences of his actions or her actions. And so I would say that, yes, uh, there has been reform uh, in that area, and I would say that it's, it, it composes probably of all the, all the states in the country. So uh, in that sense, I, I think that that has uh, occurred. Um, one other thing I would like to mention uh, about uh, private attorneys 
who represent indigent defendants in Philadelphia. Uh, for a long time, the public defender was not included in the appointment of uh, defendants who were uh, indigent uh, to defend uh, in homicide cases. I'm not sure where that came from, but uh, basically the courts vetted everyone who wanted to try homicides uh, pretty carefully and pretty strictly. Uh, and so when, sometimes when you hear, well, the attorney didn't do a good job or something like that, uh, it's hard for me to believe, uh, but there, it can happen. But the judges are really, really, uh, you know, they're, they're very, you know, strong in, in their vetting. Um, and back then they, they had what they call a wheel. Uh, so that it, the choice of the attorney was uh, an anonymous. So they couldn't tilt everything to their former law partner or something like that. Um, and so it was called uh, spinning or the case got spun to XYZ judge and uh, XYZ uh, is, was spun to represent the person. Uh, things have changed uh, over time, and now the public defender uh, does get homicides for indigents. Uh, I think it's every third homicide. So um, now you know about Marty Graham, and you know about how the appointment, court appointment system works for those defendants uh, who were indigent and accused of homicide. At this point, I know many of you people are asking, what the hell does this have to do with legends of corruption in Philadelphia? Well, uh, I guess nothing, or not much. Anyway. Uh, well, that answers that question. That was pretty good. Uh, so as uh, others might get into a discussion, uh, we're answering questions. But now we're onward uh, to one of the best things that has ever happened to Philadelphia, at least in my eyes. Uh, and my eyes count because it's my podcast. Well, Joe and Mike, you know, they're here. Of course, even good things in Philly have a crime involved. Right, Joe? Well, yeah. Well, as, as get the magistrate, you're the George Clooney of the movie here, right? Well, we're, we're, just, <laughs> we're just sidekicks. We're Steve Buscemi. Yeah, I'm Paul Giannetti. Well, we will get to Philip Leonetti, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, so uh, with that in mind, uh, keep in mind our poll star here. This is Philadelphia, so we do things differently here. I, I will begin to lay the wild story about who, what, where, and how uh, Got to the where we got to the point that Liberty Place actually pushed us into the modern world. Legend has it uh, it was kicking um, or kickbacks and screaming. You're going to uh, tell us what Liberty Place is, right? I will. Uh, and right. still in the gaping holes in this game. Uh, so as James Brown sang once, uh, let's hit it and quit. Uh, the legend of Liberty Place, which as just said changed as i just said changed our looks stop rolling your eyes podsters so let me say a little bit about this john uh then we will allow our guests to fill in the gaping holes uh of course joe and i will sprinkle in, sprinkle in some comments uh but we but let me just say that 
Liberty Place was the first building, the first skyscraper in the city that uh, eclipsed or was constructed to be higher than the hat of Billy Penn, where the sombrero, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it was designed by a man named Helmut John, J-A-N. Uh, he was from Chicago, uh, and uh, he designed the John. I uh, think that was bad, but it is what it is. Uh, Liberty Place, as I said, was a defining moment. Uh, and it took a guy from Baltimore named Willard Rouse to do it. Uh, without Liberty Place, I think it's probably a 50-50 proposition that we have that magnificent skyline that we have today. Take a look at the picture Joe put on our beautiful and uh, well-designed cover for our unofficial website, MTBW. Rouse and Liberty Place simply broke the unofficial gentleman's agreement that I just talked about. Um, but that was 1987, uh, and we had no skyline. And there was really a reason for it, uh, and it was reinforced by the city planner, uh, Edmund Bacon. And Bacon, basically, his philosophy was that Philadelphia should be a walkable city. Skyscrapers would be out of proportion for the city and take away from William Penn's plan for the city, which revolved around several main squares, which we talked about in Penn's plan during our thrilling discussion of the sinking homes of Logan. And as a side note, uh, the town squares were built after Penn died. But the central concept of the walkable city remained in one form or another, and the last being the gentleman's agreement regarding the construction of the buildings that would be no higher than the top of William Penn's hat. Uh, Bacon um, wanted the city to remain a livable, on an livable and on an inviting scale. I don't think he really had any uh, philosophical problems with skyscrapers in general. Bacon just didn't want them to break Billy Penn's vision for the core of the center of the city. And he was the head of the planning commission, right? That's right, didn't I mention that? He was the head from 1947 until he retired, which I'm not sure when, uh, but it was a long time. And uh, so we had the squares and they were uh, Central Center Square, uh, Franklin Square, Rittenhouse Square, Northwest Square, which later became known as Logan Square, and now we know it as uh, Logan Circle, and Washington Square. Uh, so boiled down to it, Bacon thought a skyscrapers would decimate the city. Uh, he believed also, which I don't understand how this is, but he believed that the air above the city constituted another public square. AP? Yeah. Are you saying that Philadelphia turned a square into a circle? Of course. <laughs> Who else would do that? Kind of explains a few things, doesn't it, about our politics? It does, and we'll get to it. All right. Sorry for the interruption. It's all right. It clarifies it. Uh, Bacon, uh, his view, by the way, was really popular. I, I've seen polls that showed by a margin of two to one, uh, the people in Philly opposed the construction of a building higher than Penn's top hat. 
no, I'm not sure who took the freaking poll. Uh, it's a legend. Anyway, I've seen polls that showed that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. So that's it for those polls. Anyway, Bacon was uh, the city planner, as we talked about, and he was responsible for a number of good and worthy things. Uh, but at this point, I think we should let Mike talk about how crime got involved with the building of Liberty Place, if you remember. Well, um, Pete, if I had known you were going to talk that much, I would have worn adult diapers. I have some on sale. I was I went to Costco today. And it's giving me a chance okay. to get a drink, too. Um, before we get into that, I have breaking news. Okay. And that was my breaking news uh, sound effect. I like it. This is a postscript to our discussion about Ernie Edwards. Oh, which, uh, oh. was the last podcast I did that with was, you guys. That was big. Yesterday, I decided to drive down to 6200 Osage Avenue to see what was going on for myself. <clears throat> wow. And he did his homework, got, now. I went down there, and um, this is one of these stories that actually has a happy ending. Oh, my um, God. I met with the general contractor. He just happened to be there, and he's a nice guy, so he agreed to talk to me. Um, he said they've rebuilt 36 houses. 19 on Osage, 17 on Pine, and there were 17 additional houses that got damaged, but they didn't rebuild them. So they're down to one house. They're just doing finishing touches on one house. Everything has been sold. Every person who lives on the 6200 block of Osage is a new, a new resident of that block. None of the residents that got displaced by the move disaster moved back. They're, they got settlements from the city and they've, they're scattered to the wind. So all these new people have moved in. And the only house that is um, not completed, but it's very close to completion, is the move house itself, 6221. Huh. And the general contractor invited me in to see what it looked like. Um, his name is Ron Ricks, the general contractor. So I went into the move house and First of all, there's central air, which, wow. um, which I guarantee you the, the house has never had before this. And wow. it, it looked like, it looked like a, um, a townhouse that you might see in Center City. Okay. It, it was very impressive. So Ron took me upstairs to show me the room where Move gained access to the roof to build the bunker. And the, the room used to have a skylight which they've now covered over with sheetrock. But he said, um, when they got there, there was still a ladder going up the, uh, the from the floor to the skylight, which Move used to bring all their crap up to the roof to build the bunker. Wow. And he said, so I said, well, um, how much do these houses cost now? And he said, they're averaging about 280 uh, sale price. And he said that, the, the concern was that 6221, the former move house, would not be sold because people might be afraid of being in it. But he said it sold right away. It sold within a week. Wow. And the person who bought it is ready to move on. And, and the, the last, what's that? 
the, the people who bought it know the history? I don't know. Um, he definitely did. He said he wasn't sure whether he should take the job or not. He, he's been on the job for about three years. Wow. And, the, and it started about six months before he got there. So about three and a half years total. And he said when he was offered the job, he didn't know whether he should take it because he knew something terrible had happened. And so he prayed on it and God told him to take it, take the job. So he did. And he and his crew um, worked really hard and rebuilt 36 homes, which have all been sold and all but one is being lived in now. And the last thing is he told me that the population of the block has totally changed. It used to be all black. Now it's, he said, we have people from India, Pakistan, China, and uh, somewhere in the Caribbean. I forget where that was. So it's, and the, the thing that struck me when I got there was, and I haven't been there in 35 years, how narrow that block is. It's like Panama Street in Center City. Like you could barely fit a van between the two curbs down that block of Osage. So, um, and I, I did not remember it that way. And um, it just struck me that the cops who were stationed in the houses across the street from Move were firing into a house that was very, very close to them. Like, yeah, not that, not far away at all. I just re had remembered it differently, but. Um, that's the postscript on Ernie Edwards and the rebuilding of the Osage Avenue and Pine Street houses. Oh, that's a pretty happy story. Yeah, I was very impressed. I told him um, when we were standing in the, the move house, I said, this house is part of history and you've altered history by doing such a great job here. And he just, he was very appreciative. So... All right, I'm, I'm, really glad, I'm really glad it all worked out, um, yeah. if not for the people who used to live there. It took a little time, but it sounds like it did. Yeah. All so right. now over to Rouse. This, it wasn't Liberty Place that was the subject of the shakedown. It was Penn's Landing. Oh, I thought it, I thought it was uh, uh, Liberty Place, but go. Yeah, me too. I thought that was. That was part of the urban legend thing, I guess. Yeah, it, it was not Liberty Place, it was Penn's Landing. And at the time, the city was viewing Penn's Landing as a, as a potential um, uh, rival to Baltimore's um, Inner Harbor and oh, New York's um, South, what's it called? Southport Fish Market or? Yeah. I forget. Yeah. And the city really had sort of a grandiose vision of what would happen uh, or what could happen at Penn's Landing. So they turned to Rouse to, um, to develop the property. And um, at the time, there was a councilman named Lee Beloff. Leland. And Leland, yes. And Penn's Landing was part of his district. He was a district councilman and Penn's Landing was within his district. He had a, an assistant uh, named Bobby Rigo. Oh God. And they um, were, through Rigo, Beloff was hooked up with the mob. Now, if, if I can take this back to the, the night Angelo Bruno got murdered, because the, it has a direct connection to that. Bruno gets murdered in March of 1980. 
he gets shot in his car right outside his house at 10th and Snyder. And um, at that point, um, he was head of the Philadelphia mob. And there was a, a sense that he was letting good opportunities go by as head of the mob because he was very opposed to drug dealing. And there were people in the mob that um, really wanted to get into that line of business and he was dead set against it. So um, he was set up and uh, by people in the mob, including Nicky Scarfo. Oh, that who, name comes up again and again. Yes. So um, when Bruno got hit, um, the, that, the, that wing of the mafia was being run by the Genovese fam family in New York. Right. And they so like after Bruno was murdered, they, the Genovese family picked uh, Chicken Man Testa, Phil Chicken Man Testa. We talked about who, him and Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> he was going to succeed Bruno. And um, so what ensued after the, the, Angelo Bruno hit was a, an all-out mob war that lasted a good Believe couple of on. years in Philadelphia. I mean, yeah. people people who weren't around in Philadelphia at that time have no idea that the, the mob and murders associated with the Bruno hit dominated the news and and conversation in Philadelphia for two years. I think every it was 25 people got killed. There were bodies showing up every week. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but it was it, it was happening so much. So, um, so Testa was running the mob at the time, and somebody um, got mad at, at Testa, and a guy named Peter Casella. And um, I'm not really sure why he got mad at him, but he hired a guy named Teddy DiPretoro to build a nail bomb. Oh, I'm sorry, Casella made the bomb and he paid Di Pretoro to put it on Testa's front porch. And it had a, a remote detonation device. And Testa, you know, arrived home and they detonated the bomb and he died. He died of his wounds. And so the Genovese family, when that happened, said, okay, Nicky Scarfo is going to be the new boss. Now, Nicky Scarfo figures into this Rouse thing because he was hooked up with uh, Bobby Rigo, who was um, the assistant to Lee Beloff. Lee Beloff, again, his district included Pence Landing. Now, Beloff, Rigo, and Scarfo, along with a guy named Nicky Caramandi. Nicky Caramandi. Nicky Crow. Nicky Crow, known as Nicky Crow, had, had practiced a shakedown on, a, on another developer named Harry DeVoe. And they, uh, Harry DeVoe was building a, um, some development in Queen Village, uh, not Queen Village, um, the area around Second and Race, what is that called? Northern Liberties, the tip of Northern Liberties. Whatever Old it is. It, yeah, Old City, Old City. Old city, old city right. um, and he needed um, some legislation in City Council passed to allow him to, I, I think it was a zoning issue that of he course. had to overcome. So he got to, um, he, he was approached by Nick, Nicky Crow and um, Bobby Rigo on behalf of Bella to say, okay, if you want this zoning thing done, 
you're going to have to pay up. And what we want is an apartment for Beloff's mistress, um, Denise Scullin, I think her name was. Yeah. And we want that apartment in a fancy building in Old City. So uh, Harry DeVoe accepted that deal. He got her an apartment that at the time was renting for like 800 a month, which at the time was, or not, uh, actually 950, at the time was, um, was expensive. And um, he got his zoning change. So once they did that, they figured we can go after bigger fish. So they, they um, noticed that Rouse had been selected to redevelop Penn's Landing. So they thought, okay, we'll shake down Rouse. So they had um, Nikki Crow approach an employee of the Rouse company named Peter Balitseris. And he said, um, okay, um, I know you guys need this, um, these, there were two pieces of legislation in city council. You need these passed to get your development done and um, it's gonna cost you. And the, the Rouse guy said, well, how much? And, and he said, one. And the Rouse guy said, well, I assume there's some zeros after the one. And Paramandi <laughs> said, yeah, as many zeros as there are. And um, so the guy took that to mean $1 million. So this was reported back to Rouse, who was petrified, and he went to the FBI. And the FBI set up an FBI agent to pose as a member of the Rouse organization. And they wired um, him and the, uh, the guy who had originally been approached. So the next time they met with Nikki Crow, they were wired. And um, there were eventually, I think, 150 some wiretaps, 150 recordings associated with these wiretaps that were used as evidence in the eventual trial. And so um, Rigo, Beloff, Nikki Crow, um, Scarfo and another guy named John Bennett got um, indicted and eventually convicted. The first trial ended in a mistrial and then they got retried and um, they got convicted and they all got sent to jail. And Scarfo ended up dying in jail three years ago. He was 87. Hmm. Um, one, of the, one of the funniest things was um, Beloff hired a guy named Oscar Goodman to represent him. He Goodman was, was a, yeah, he was from Vegas and um, he was a very flamboyant character. And um, he said um, before the first uh, trial ended in a mistrial, he told um, Beloff and Scarfo that he would, um, if, if, they, if they got um, off in that trial, he would dive into the fountains outside the Four Seasons Hotel naked. And so Oscar Goodman, who had represented um, Beloff, said he would um, jump naked into the fountains outside the Four Seasons Hotel. And so he, he put on a bathrobe and he walked outside the hotel and was about to jump in or about to take off the bathrobe. And police who happened to be there told him they'd arrest him if he took it off. So he kept it on and he went back inside the hotel. And um, there was a reporter at the Daily News at the time named Maria Gallagher, who was a wonderful writer and reporter. 
she was at the, she happened to be at the Four Seasons to cover this party. And she watched them, um, Scarfo and all his pals, um, drink uh, like $80 a shot um, brandy. And they racked up $10,000 in like two hours um, <laughs> that afternoon. And, but, you know, Scarfo couldn't keep out of jail. They celebrated that day, but, um, but he had a lot of other, other um, issues. And uh, he ended up in jail and ended up dying. I always remembered um, this um, this uh, guy in the New Jersey State Police who headed up their organized crime unit. He was asked about Scarfo and he said, well, on a scale of one to 10, I'd give him a 1.5 in intelligence and a 9.5 in violence. And um, people always described him as, um, you know, a, a very um, violent, he had a very violent temper and he thought nothing of ordering murders. Uh, well, his, his nephew, Phil Leonetti, who is no stranger to murders, said that uh, he was psychotic and liked to kill people. Uh, and Leonetti, I think, probably killed a couple of people at least for his uncle. Uh, and he ended up... Uh, he, flipping, as they say, and testifying against some of these notorious uh, bad guys in several federal trials, one of which sent his uncle uh, to die in, I think, a federal prison. I don't think he died in a state prison. I think the feds probably uh, probably finished him off. So, now, the, um, the, one, of the, one of the postscripts to this whole thing is that Nikki Crow and a guy named Tommy Del Giorno, Tommy Dell, um, decided that they would um, flip and put themselves at the um, mercy of the FBI. They said, "You know, we're we're willing to um, tell tell you everything about Nikki Scarfo and his organization, and we're willing to testify." And as a result of that cooperation, especially Del Giorno, the the FBI managed to solve two dozen homicides, I think it was, and got convictions on many of them, not on all of them, but many of them. And um, so Nikki Crow, uh, I guess he's, I guess he's in the witness protection program now. I don't know. I don't know if he's still alive, but he, he factored into the, um, the Rouse shakedown in a central role. He had a central role in that shakedown. So uh, being corrected on how Rouse got shook, uh, shook down or shaken down, uh, I thought it was Liberty Place, but these are all legends and that's why we're here. Uh, but we were talking about Bacon for a little bit um, and he was, you know, uh, he was responsible for a lot of, a lot of good things uh, in the city. Uh, and in the I guess in the early, in the late 40s and the 50s, I think we all know the car was the thing. And, and Bacon uh, designed and planned 676 Vine Street, the expressway, uh, which links up to 95. Um, so in those days, um, Vine Street uh, was not much, uh, especially east of Broad Street. It was basically Skid Row. Uh, and uh, he, by building that, uh, by building uh, Fine Street, he created a, a man-made barrier 
that basically eliminated foot traffic access to uh, a portion to the Delaware River, uh, simply because he created such a big wide swath of road that it led into uh, the Ben Franklin Bridge. Um, and of course, that also kind of overshadowed uh, one of Penn's five squares, which is uh, Franklin Square, which uh, if you're lucky enough to find it, it's really hard to walk to it because of all the uh, twists and turns that you get either to try and get on 6th Street or to get on the bridge. I've still uh, never and, been there. I've been living in Philadelphia all my life. I've still never been there. It's a good place, really. You should check it out, especially during the Lantern uh, Festival, although I don't think they'll have it this year. Uh, and in the early 60s, uh, he proposed a sort of a parallel uh, to Vine Street, and that was the Crosstown Expressway, which was uh, designed uh, to run from South Street uh, to 95 as well. Uh, it was known as the Crosstown Expressway, and um, that was fought by a number of people uh, community activists, uh, including my parents, uh, and that part of this show was is not legend. Anyway, there were several main uh, arguments for the opposition to Vine Street, and most of you uh, posters don't know, but that South Street was from river to river, uh, the demographic was similar to Vine Street, but slightly further south, say Bainbridge, was a poor black neighborhood. Uh, the northern tip of South Philly, if you will. And one of the arguments against building the Crosstown was uh, by paralleling Vine Street with the Crosstown, you were creating sort of a Berlin Wall in the core of the city, separating blacks from whites. Uh, and another argument was that South Street, at least towards the Delaware, was uh, sort of in its embryonic or early stages of development, as was Society Hill. So. Uh, yes, boys and girls, that was the first generation gentrification, uh, but Bacon eventually changed his mind about Crosstown. Um, the civic activists uh, opposed Crosstown, and they grew into a pretty progressive political base on both sides of Broad Street, and that became a powerful voting block. And ideas, different ideas about government in Philadelphia, uh, in their communities and elsewhere, uh, changed because there was a different mindset. Uh, and if you look at the two main ele elementary schools on either side of the river, uh, either side of Broad, uh, you got McCall and what is now named Greenfield, but it was known as Center City. Uh, so, but you, uh, by not building Crosstown, you were able to see integration. Uh, children uh, began uh, to be exposed to different cultures, uh, different ways of life. There was no barrier. Uh, and so, as I said, there was change in Crosstown. Not building Crosstown promoted that. Uh, of course, there was still poor. The schools outside the center of the city were not very good. Masterman, in fact, was not a high school. In the early and mid-60s, it was a neighborhood in elementary school serving mostly uh, Hispanic children. Um, uh, and you could argue that there was segregation in that. Um, but in the 60s, it didn't matter much whether or not you did well in school. Uh, again, I've said this repeatedly, there was a large manufacturing base and you didn't really need much more in high school. Uh, 
education. But by the late 80s, Liberty Place uh, was built by Rouse uh, and we had elected a black mayor, uh, a black superintendent of schools was appointed. Uh, so we were moving past Rizzo, but really not totally. So we didn't have, and we still do not have pedestrian access to the Delaware where Penn came to. So the idea of an accessible city uh, is not going to happen in my lifetime, at least accessible the way it is uh, in, the, in the ports of both Baltimore and Boston. But politics in Philly really changed, uh, and you can attribute that to uh, not building uh, Crosstown. So Rouse uh, broke the spell, and he acquired the land around 16th and 17th and Chestnut. And basically, uh, he took a bunch of parking lots and odds and ends, and uh, he made a downtown out of it by simply building Liberty Place, which was a prime location. It's a couple blocks from Suburban Station, same for City Hall, uh, and the office offices built by the gentleman's agreement uh, below the top of Billy Penn's hat. Uh, the design was really cool. Uh, it was, looked like the Chrysler building, and it still does. Uh, but that was 1987, and getting it built, well, that was all part of the plan of, and corruption. Um, Mike told us about the building, uh, about building the, uh, the properties down in uh, Old City and the payoffs to that. Uh, Mike, uh, let me just ask you, uh, the holdup on the zoning had to do with councilmatic prerogative. Can you explain that to us podsters out here? Well, because um, Beloff, because that area of the city was in Beloff's district, he had the ability to either advance or um, keep dormant um, legislation that would allow um, Rouse's plan to move forward. And so that's why they approached Beloff. He had that kind of control and power. The councilmatic prerogative. Yeah. On, on zoning. And, and that's still there today. I mean, Beloff's been in and out of jail, but councilmatic prerogative uh, is still there so that if somebody wants to build something it, and it, uh, it involves the changing of a zone, uh, zoning, they have to, uh, unless it's some small house, they have to get uh, a zoning change, then they have to go to the councilman uh, to, because he or she can use their prerogative uh, to block such things. And that's right, so, that's, right. so um, that's a ripe place for Philadelphia to do what we do. We do things differently here. Um, so, uh, there was also, uh, to put a capper on this, um, Liberty Place was built, and you can look at the skyline that was built afterwards, and it, it, we've actually become a modern, uh, forward-looking city. But the capper is two things. One, after Liberty Place was built, the, the uh, urban legend was that no Philadelphia team would win a championship after, because the uh, Billy Penn had been, uh, his height, the height had been eclipsed. 
um, of course, and that was like the, the hex in Boston after they traded George Herman Ruth, Babe Ruth, to New York, that they would never win a championship ever, the Red Sox. Um, the Phillies won in 08, so that hex was broken, and the Red Sox won before that. So that's the end of the hexes, but it's a good story. And final piece to the puzzle is that now when these uh, skyscrapers are built, and I think the last one was Liberty, I mean, was uh, Comcast 2, they take a little statue of Billy Penn and they use that to cap off the, the building. So no building is higher than Billy Penn's hat. So those were the last two things. And oh, one other thing, the gentleman's agreement was a gentleman's agreement. There was no law in place that uh, prohibited buildings being built uh, higher than Billy Penn's hat. So in the end, we got a beautiful skyline, and at least I think so. And we almost got a grown up city, um, but some say skin is only beauty deep. And that brings us to our favorite topic and more and more and more corruption. And that would start with Steve Traits. And um, Traits was, uh, he was a really tough guy and, and, and he was the head of the roofers union. And in case you don't know, roofers are pretty tough guys. Uh, and Traits was a disciple of a guy by the name of John McCullough. They called him Long John. And Long John, uh, curiously enough, uh, was hooked up with uh, the people that Mike just spoke about uh, in the mob. Uh, McCullough, in all these murders that Mike just outlined, uh, also got dead. Um, and so uh, that's when Traits became the president of uh, the Roofers Union. I'm not sure. There's two unions. There's 30 and 30B. I'm not sure which one, maybe both. And their headquarters was, and I think it still is, up in the Northeast. Um, but Traits, um, along the way, uh, became a, uh, a collection agent, shall we say, for, the, here's that name again, Nikki Scarfo. Um, and Trace was a good boxer, uh, and uh, I guess having a good boxer uh, on the payroll is a pretty good thing if he's collecting debts. So Scarfo came, uh, Trace came under the wing of Scarfo. Uh, and uh, so in addition to being the president of the union, the roofers union, Trace uh, did collection work. Um, now, he wasn't above uh, using some funds uh, for activities that might not have been exactly union activities. And the feds uh, or the FBI and the U U.S. Attorney's Office, and that's who we mean when we say feds, they began to get information that allowed them to go to court and obtain a wire or a bug, whatever you want to call it, uh, and installed it at the union headquarters up in the Northeast. It caught a lot of activity among uh, a lot of roofers. Uh, the one that caught uh, their feds attention, and as of note, is trace stuffing envelopes or cash full of cash of about three hundred to five hundred dollars uh, uh, in envelopes around Christmas time, and they were destined for judges in Philadelphia and other suburban counties. Um, and I guess the envelopes, as I said, were. Uh, 
Christmas gifts. Uh, and two of them were made to Philadelphia judges, uh, Joseph Bragg and Mary Rose Cunningham. Um, and those two were, let's just say, evicted from the judicial branch of the world in Philadelphia. Traits uh, and a number of others were arrested. The trial lasted for weeks. And in the end, Traits was convicted. He did his time. Uh, he was released from prison and he passed away a couple years ago. The urban legend has it that his son, Steve Jr., went on to an illustrious career as a drug dealer. And that, those are my tall tales for the bar stool for part one. Uh, a couple of questions. Joe, did you ever meet Edmund Bacon in your travels around Wissahickon, Roxborough, or anywhere else? I did meet him, but I was um, I had my son. We biked from Wissahickon down to the art museum. Um, it was Labor Day, and there was a parade going on. The union got all down, and we, he and my uh, kid and I, were having a picnic, and he comes strolling by and sits down next to us and asks me. What did I think about the parkway? That's the first and only time I met Mr. Bacon. Well, I told, I'm sure you told him it was the greatest thing since uh, the Champs-Louis. I did. I said, uh, we don't need any hot dog vendors like they have at the Champs de Louis. De Louis? De Louis. something. Anyway. Uh, I, I didn't have French. I'm nice, but Spanish. I barely had English. Uh, Mike, uh, how about you? Did you ever meet Edmund Bacon? I believe I did. Um, they lived at 21st and Locust, Kevin Bacon and his father, oh, Edmund, Kevin and his Bacon. brother, Mike. I knew, I knew you were going to bring up that name. Go ahead. <laughs> Who's that? Um, and uh, Edmund Bacon was very tall. I think he was 6'7 mm. and uh, extremely skinny. He looked like Ichabod Crane. And... You would see him walking around Center City frequently, and he, he stood out, um, you know, because of his height and just, just the way he looked. He, he always looked very severe. And I think I met him as a, as a young kid, but I can't specifically remember what it was like or what he was like. He, he was a, if you looked at him, he seemed like a very forbidding character, but I, I have no idea what he was like personally. So... Uh, you mentioned uh, that he was Kevin Bacon's father, uh, meaning that both you and I grew up with Kevin Bacon. Uh, but I think that you and I would uh, agree that Kevin Bacon, when he was Kevin Bacon, uh, was not the big deal in that, in that house. His older brother, Michael, who was a little bit older than us, was the big deal. Kevin was Kevin. Uh, and of course, then he went on to be the Kevin Bacon. Uh, so Mike, Mike met the father, I met the father, and we both grew up with Kevin and Michael was the coolest of the three. Um, so <laughs> I think that's where we're going to end, uh, Pops, Podsters, uh, uh, with that lovely story that Mike and I are six degrees to Kevin Bacon or, or Edmund Bacon or Michael Bacon. Anyway. Whatever um, his name is and all. So. Uh, sir, uh, tell us about what, what do we have to look forward to in the next couple of episodes? I'm glad you asked, Joe. I thought you'd never ask. Well, we did a lot of stuff today that sort of set the stage of what was going on in 87, the mob traits, 
But uh, the real big deal in 87 was, of course, the mayoral election, uh, primary to general. Uh, the stories are legend. I have some. Joe, I'm sure you have some. And Mike, I'm sure you have some, too. Uh, so, so everyone that's a potster, tell your other friends who want to be potsters to uh, Money Talks and Bullshit Walks to listen in for show number two on 1987, the mayoral race of all time, <laughs> or at least up to 87. <laughs> Sounds good. Humphrey Mori would be very proud of you. All right. That's all I got. Hey. Good night, Irene. Good night. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Ciao, bueno. Mike.